Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 67. Last week, I covered the tribes of Dan, Judah, Benjamin, and Simeon, and with that, wrapped up all of the tribes that were allotted land by Joshua, which still leaves me with the history of one tribe left, and that's Levi. I chose to cover the tribes based on the territory they were assigned by Joshua, and this makes a certain amount of sense, as the history and fate of each tribe would be similar to that of their neighbors. But the tribe of Levi was assigned no territory, so without a territory, they are the last tribe I'll cover before getting back to the book of Exodus. The reasons for their lack of land will be one of the many things, of course, discussed. And with that very short introduction, let's get started. The tribe of Levi is said to have descended from Levi, a son of Jacob. As seen in Genesis chapter 46, Levi had three sons, Gershon, Kohath, and Merer. Kohath's son, Amram, was the father of Miriam, Aaron, and Moses. The descendants of Aaron, known as the Kohamim, had the distinct role as priest in the tabernacle in the wilderness, which led to a similar role when the temple was built in Jerusalem. The rest of the Levites were divided into three groups, Gershonites, who descended from Gershon, Kohathites, who descended from Kohath, and Mirarites, who descended from Mirari. Each group fulfilled different roles at the tabernacle and later in the temple services. From Aaron came the first high priest of Israel, a group known as the Kong Gidol. These men were the priestly class, and their official name were the Kohamim. As seen throughout the Old Testament, the tribe of Levi served the Hebrews in both a religious and political capacity. The tribes with land were expected to make donations to the priest, a tithe, in order to support their religious endeavors. They would serve as the priest at the temples, and those not specifically in the priesthood would serve in other functions. During the Exodus, and the forty years of wandering, the Levites' tribe was particularly fervent in protecting the Mosaic Law, especially when the masses were worshipping the golden calf. This may have caused, or at least elevated, their priestly status. They would not be counted in the census among the children of Israel, but they were numbered separately as a special army. Their task included the singing of psalms during temple services, performing construction and maintenance on the temple, and serving as temple guards. So, in the New Testament, when you read of the high priest or the temple guard, these would have been from the tribe of Levi, descended from the same family as Aaron and Moses. The book of Ezra tells of how the Levites were responsible for the construction of the second temple, and also translated and explained the Torah when it was publicly read. This occupation was formally assigned to them in Numbers chapter 18, which reads, The Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons and your ancestral house with you shall bear responsibility for offenses connected with the sanctuary, while you and your sons alone shall bear responsibility for offenses connected with the priesthood. 
So bring with you also your brothers of the tribe of Levi, your ancestral tribe, in order that they may be joined to you, and serve you while you and your sons with you are in front of the tent of the covenant. They shall perform duties for you and for the whole tent, but they must not approach either the utensils of the sanctuary or the altar. Otherwise, both they and you will die. They are attached to you in order to perform the duties of the tent of meeting. For all the service of the tent, no outsider shall approach you. You yourselves shall perform the duties of the sanctuary and the duties of the altar, so that wrath may never again come upon the Israelites. It is I who now take your brother Levites from among the Israelites. They are now yours as a gift, dedicated to the Lord, to perform the service of the tent of meeting. But you and your sons with you shall diligently perform your priestly duties in all that concerns the altar and in the area behind the curtain. I give you your priesthood as a gift. Any outsider who approaches shall be put to death. End quote. In the Old Testament books of the prophets, there are various other passages referring to them, but the overriding sediment is that they were a special lot charged with maintaining the temple, its physical structures, and the various vestments and traditions of the religion. The tribe was not mentioned in the Song of Deborah, but considering that they were priests and the passage is essentially the celebration of a military victory, their absence shouldn't be surprising. In Joshua chapter 13, we're told that the tribe did not receive an allotment of land. Instead, quoting, But to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, as he said to them. End quote. And in Jacob's blessing, back in Genesis chapter 49, Levi, along with Simeon, are both told, Weapons of violence are their swords. May I, meaning Jacob, may I never come into their counsel. May I not be joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and at their whim they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob, and scatter them in Israel. End quote. This last part, that they will be scattered in Israel, is Jacob's premonition that they would not be allotted land. Of course, Simeon was given territory, completely surrounded by Judah, and that territory was not well defined. Finally, there were many in both the Old and New Testaments that were considered, or specifically named, as being part of the tribe. These included Samuel, Ezekiel, Ezra, Malachi, and John the Baptist. As for the baptizer John, in Luke chapter 1, we learn that his father, Zechariah, was part of the priestly order of Abijah. John's mother was Elizabeth and was a descendant of Aaron. So, John the Baptist was a member of the tribe from both his mother and his father. And that's it for the many tribes of Israel, which gets me back to the first chapter of Exodus. After the tribes, the next people or place mentioned are the cities of Ramses and Pithom, but I covered those as part of the history of Egypt. Next, 
verse 15 of the first chapter mentions two midwives that helped save the infant Hebrew boys from the massacre ordered by the Pharaoh, specifically Shiphra and Puah. The two midwives disobey the all-powerful ruler, and when he asks them why, they tell him that Hebrew women give birth so quickly that the midwives can't get there in time. At the end of the chapter, we're told that God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. The 11th century AD Jewish rabbi Rashi Talmud wrote that Shifra was the same person as Jashabet, the mother of Moses. He also claimed that Pua was the same person as Miriam, Moses' sister. This, of course, made the two midwives mother and daughter. To be clear, there is nothing in the text that makes this connection, but just so you know. In Egypt, in the outside historic record, there's a little known about Shipra, or at least someone with this name. The name itself is found in a list of slaves in Egypt during the reign of Sobekhoptep III, who ruled for only three to four years as part of the 13th dynasty, which places him in the second intermediate period. His approximate dates on the throne were sometime between about 1740 and 1700 BC. And considering that there are no solid dates presented in Exodus around the massacre, but instead the dating is extremely approximate considering the arrival of Joseph, then his brothers, then Jacob, and all of the subsequent events. Long story short, it could easily have been the same person, but there's no solid proof. As for the list of slaves that included someone named Shipra, it was found on a papyrus that's now in the Brooklyn Museum in that borough of New York. As for the name, it's thought to be Aramaic and translate to the word beautiful. Far less is known about Pua. Well, really nothing. It's thought her name may be Canaanite and may translate to little girl. Which gets me to the end of Exodus chapter 1. Chapter 2 starts out with the house of Levi and the Pharaoh. So, both of those already covered. Then the timeline is sped up a bit, with Moses having grown up. He murders an Egyptian, ends up fleeing the Median, to escape the wrath of the Pharaoh. Median is the next place I'll cover. Now, not only is Median mentioned in the Old Testament, it's also found in the Islamic Quran. More on that in a minute. Sources usually point to its location as being in the northwestern Arabian Peninsula, east of the Gulf of Aqaba, on the Red Sea. It's thought that the area remained sparsely inhabited until about the 8th century BC, which was well after Moses. The key to remember here is that sparsely inhabited is not the same as uninhabited. In fact, sparsely inhabited would have been appealing to someone on the run from the Pharaoh. In Genesis chapter 25, we're told that the Midianites were the descendants of Median, and Median was a son of Abraham through his wife Keturah. Outside of the Old Testament, researchers have proposed that the land that would become known as Median did not refer to a geographic place, or even to a specific tribe. 
Instead, it was likely a loose confederation of tribes. These same researchers proposed that their common bond were similar religious practices. These same researchers do point to shrines in the area of Eloth, which is on the northern tip of the Gulf of Aqaba. A second shrine was said to have been in Kadesh, which is in the opposite direction in Syria. These locations are a point of contention among academics, but the loose organization of tribes is generally agreed upon. There are the remnants of a temple at Timna, thought to be where they worshipped some deity. This location was likely a mining camp in the desert north of the Red Sea. The temple was replete with post holes, large quantities of red and yellow decayed cloth with beads woven into it, and many copper rings and wire, likely used to suspend curtains. Then something a little more interesting. A small bronze snake with a gilded head was discovered, along with a collection of metal objects that included a small bronze figurine of a bearded male, possibly a deity. With the exception of the snake and the small figurine, the rest of the discovery seems very similar to the tabernacle described in Exodus. There was also pottery found in the area, found at numerous sites from the southern Levant to northwestern Saudi Arabia, though most of it has been found at these mining camps. This pottery dates to as early as 1200 BC. The artwork suggests that at some point they were seafaring, which isn't too much of a stretch, as the Red Sea is not that far away. As for the actual religion, it's unknown who or what the Midianites worshipped. It's thought that the pantheon was similar to that of their neighbors, the Moabites, and included Baal-Payer and Ashtoreth, their queen of heaven. Baal-Payer is mentioned in several places in the Old Testament, including Deuteronomy chapter 4, where God destroyed those who worshipped him, and Gideon, in Judges chapter 6, destroys an altar to him, an altar used by the Midianites. There's a counter-theory that in their later history, the Midianites began to worship Yahweh, probably as a result of their interactions with the Israelites. And this too makes sense, as later in Exodus, we see that Moses' father-in-law, a man sometimes called Ruel, other times, Jethro was a Midianite priest. I wonder if his name was different based on if you were on his left or on his right. That will make more sense later. In chapter 18, Jethro states, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because he delivered the people from the Egyptians when they dealt arrogantly with them. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. Quote. So, a Midianite priest began to worship the one God. The Midianites would warrant another mention in Judges chapters 5 and 6, where they would oppress the Israelites for seven years. And then they were defeated by Gideon, who would kill five of their kings. After this defeat, they largely disappear from the record. Circling back a bit, they were the group that in Genesis chapter 37 sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites. 
Overall, given their familiar relationships over so many generations, it's easy to see how the history of the Israelites and the Midianites were so intertangled. There are many other mentions in the Old Testament, but you get the idea. They were in constant contact, and sometimes the Israelites would worship their pantheon. And of course God, who was not pleased, would crack down on his chosen, and would authorize the Israelites to do the same to the Midianites. In the end, meaning in the later parts of the Old Testament, the mentions of Midian seem to be more geographic, such as passing through a place with the same name or selling livestock from the area. Now for a short foray into Islam and their interactions with the Midianites. In the Quran, they are mentioned under slightly different names several times. Here, too, they are called the children of Abraham. It's also implied that they are polytheistic and are even warned to repent before they meet their judgment. Their transgressions aren't limited to religious practices. They also cheat in their trade using false weights and are presented as highway robbers. They would meet their end in an earthquake, specifically an earthquake that rolled through one night, and they were buried in their own homes. Another source claims a volcanic eruption did them in. Some point to Hal al-Badr, a volcano in northwestern Saudi Arabia, and in the general area where the Midianites are thought to have lived. It did erupt sometime in the Holocene period, which ended around 9000 BC. And that's it for the Midianites. The next place mentioned in Exodus is in chapter 3, and that's Horeb, which is said to be the mountain of God. Later, in Deuteronomy, we see many references to the mountain, including in chapter 5, where it said the Ten Commandments were received by Moses there. Of course, Exodus claims the Ten Commandments were received at Mount Sinai. So, how to reconcile this? Traditionally, it's been thought that they, meaning Horeb and Sinai, were two names for the same place. First Kings also lists Horeb as the mountain of God. Later, really, really later, John Calvin, the 16th century AD Protestant reformer, wrote that Sinai and Horeb were the same mountain, with the eastern side of the mountain being called Sinai, and the western side being called Horeb. Abraham Ibn Ezra, a 12th century Spanish Jewish writer, said it was one mountain with two separate peaks, each peak with a different name. As for those names, Horeb is thought to refer to heat or the sun, and that aligns with the burning bush that Moses encountered there. Sinai may refer to the moon, so the mountain of the sun and the moon. Maybe. There are several other mentions. It was at Horeb that Moses was able to get water from a rock. Later in Exodus, the wandering group decamped from Horeb and headed to Canaan. This seems parallel to a passage in the first chapter of Deuteronomy. And that's it for Horeb. Next in chapter 3, we're told of the people who currently live in Canaan. Of course, the Canaanites, but also the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. 
I'm going to table the history of these for when the Israelites finally arrive in the land promised to them. The next several chapters have Moses rejoining with his brother Aaron and then several interactions with the Pharaoh as Moses and Aaron attempt to persuade the king to let the Israelites go. Then the many plagues, but no new people or places, which gets me to chapter 9 and the land of Goshen. I've touched on this before, so just think of this next minute or two as a refresher. A previous Pharaoh, when Joseph was his vizier, gave this land to Jacob and Joseph's brothers. The land was in the eastern portion of the Nile Delta, so prime agricultural and grazing land. It's said to be the most prime real estate in all of Egypt. As for the outside historic record, the 19th century Swiss archaeologist Edward Naville claimed that Goshen was a gnome in Egypt, located in the eastern delta that would later meaning during the 26th dynasty, be known as Jossum, or sometime written as Kesem. The 26th dynasty ran from 672 to 525 BC. Naville would write that Goshen spanned from the western end of the Wadi Tumulet all the way to Sukkoth. In between these two areas was the proposed locations of the cities of Pithom and Ramses, as seen earlier in Exodus. Moving along. The next mention on people and places is in chapter 12, with the cities of Ramses and Sukkoth. I've covered what is known about Ramses ad nauseum, and like Goshen, I previously touched on Sukkoth. But as a quick reminder, Sukkoth is thought to be the modern city of Arish, on the Mediterranean coast of the eastern portion of the Sinai Peninsula but the identification as this city is tenuous at best. It could also be a minor city in the Nile Delta. After Sukkoth was Etham. According to the Old Testament, Etham was on the edge of the wilderness. And just for clarity, when you see the word wilderness in this context, think of it as being uninhabited land. So, Etham was on the edge of civilization. Some believe that Etham is another name for Khatam, which was a fortress on the Great Wall of Egypt. This wall was intended to keep invaders out and ran from the Mediterranean Sea to the Gulf of Suez, essentially approximating the route of the modern Suez Canal. The city of Etham may have been close to the modern town of Ismailia, which would have been about midway on this military wall. The next stop for the Israelites was the city of Pi Ha'iroth, where the city is said to be the location where the Israelites encamped between Migdal and the sea, opposite of Baal Zephon. They encamped here while awaiting attack by Pharaoh before crossing the Red Sea. To get there, as recounted in Exodus chapter 14, the Israelites actually turned around. This was said to make Pharaoh think they didn't know where they were going. Now, like many of the places in this portion of the Old Testament, and several of those in this episode, no one is sure of the exact location of Pihiroth. It's speculated that it's near gorges, or a river, or maybe a canal. But given that it's before the crossing of the Red Sea, or the Sea of Reeds, 
it's a fairly safe assumption that it's somewhere between the delta, the military wall, and the sea. William Smith, a 19th century English lexographer, meaning the writer of dictionaries, identified Pihiroth with the city of Arsinoa, Egypt, which is at the northern end of the Gulf of Suez. Strong's Concordance simply locates Pihiroth as a place on the eastern border of Egypt. Well, that narrows it down. And we are given a clue that it was between Migdal and the sea. So, that could point us in the right direction. And I could go ahead and cover Migdal, but there's not enough time left in this episode. So that will have to wait until next week. Join me then while I'll kick off with that location. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.